Okay, so we continue with our study here on evangelism this morning. You can see from the title on your, on your sheet there, dealing with questions and objections that arise when we're talking to others about the gospel. And if you've done much evangelism, you know people have both questions about the gospel and objections to the gospel. Um, questions about what we believe and objections to the things that we believe. And I, I think the truth is, at least in my experience, that most people initially object and reject the gospel. I mean, I can think about the many times that I've shared the gospel. I can't particularly remember anybody right in that moment dropping to their knees and repenting before, before the Lord, but thinking through things, asking questions, objecting what they've heard. And when people do come to the place of repentance and, and belief, it usually will have taken some time for that person to get there. Some deep, long conversations, multiple follow-up meetings, and lots of patience on our behalf. And that's not to say that God doesn't convert instantaneously, but typically you probably, if you're bearing fruit, if you share the gospel with somebody and they come to know the Lord, and you ask them, tell me about your gospel experience, about when you heard the gospel. Typically it's like, you know, I heard it about five years ago. And then I heard it again about three years ago, and then so on, right? So seeds typically have been planted earlier and watered, and in God's grace, somebody has to be the one to see that person come to Christ. And what a joy that is when that happens. But typically, it's because some, uh, some work has already taken place in that person's heart. So what do we do when we talk to somebody about the gospel, and they just say, no thanks, or sometimes in less polite terms than that. Or they have questions. How do we respond to these things? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we want to talk about it primarily in two ways. First, we want to look at how the Bible tells us to handle questions and objections. And then we'll also look at what to say to the most common questions and objections. Okay, so how should we answer objections to and questions about the gospel? And the Bible tells us at least six things about how to do it. So you can see that there on your outline. The first one there is that we should expect objections to the gospel. We should expect objections to the gospel. Now, that's, that's, that's not having a pessimistic view of sharing the faith, right? That's just reality as we look at it through Scripture. When we share the gospel, people are often going to disagree with us and the reason for that is because they don't understand us. They don't understand the message that we're bringing. And the Bible says that we should expect this. And what we have to remind ourselves of is the reason that they're rejecting us when we share the gospel isn't fundamentally about us or our explanation of it. Now, that being said, we should learn how to effectively share the gospel, which I hope is why you're in this class. But the reality is, it's ultimately about them and their rejection of the truth. And we see this in, a, in multiple places in the scripture, but I'll just bring out a couple here. If somebody can read that passage for us from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, up on the PowerPoint here. Okay, so we recognize, right, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
Okay, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So that's why you can share the truth, right, with two people and explain it exactly the same way. And one says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And the other one says, that's exactly what I need to deal with the sin that I have against a holy God. All right, so those are the two sets of, of people that are out there. Now, we don't know who they are, right? So we preach the gospel to to all people, um, but we understand that to some, it's folly, right? We see this a little bit further on in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, if somebody can read that for us. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, but they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, notice what is being said here. First, they're folly to him, right? And he's not able to understand them. And why is that? Because they're spiritually discerned. So let me reemphasize what that should tell us about evangelism. We better be fervently praying for people. We recognize, I don't have anything. It's not going to be my persuasive technique that brings this person to Christ, right? They're blind to the truth. They need the Spirit of God to open their eyes just as we needed the Spirit of God to open our eyes. So it makes us fervent and dependent upon God. I'm going to plant or I'm going to water, but you got to do this. This is totally dependent upon, upon you. And that should bring great comfort to us as well because we feel our own weakness, right? We're not looking at ourselves and being like, oh man, i, I got to say it just right. And again, we should learn how to share the gospel effectively, but it, it removes this great burden like their conversion is responsible upon your explanation of the gospel right now. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance based on how you share the gospel with this person. That's frightening, right? It's, no, I'm going to do my best to share it and I'm going to pray fervently. Lord, please take it and awaken this person as only you can. As only you can. Larry, did you want to say something? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay. So as we look at this, these, these couple passages, it's unnatural for people to understand and receive the truth of God's message. Because, as the scripture tells us, they're spiritually deaf, and we know that they're spiritually deaf because they're spiritually dead. As a matter of fact, five times in the gospel accounts, you hear Jesus say this, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says. Isn't that interesting? It's like, okay, hold on, everybody just heard, why, why are you saying, let everybody has ears here that I can see, right? There, there's, there's a hearing that's not just physical, right? It's just not, I'm hearing what you're saying. That has to drop down by the power of the Spirit of God and cause that person to really believe what is being, what is being said. And as we look throughout the scriptures, what we should be encouraged by as well is this is the testimony that we see throughout the text, isn't it? That as the gospel goes forth, oftentimes it's rejected. I mean, think of the ministry of Jesus alone. 
How would most modern evangelicals look at Jesus and say how fruitful his ministry was? I mean, when it was all said and done after his ministry, you had about, what, 120 or so? Right? 120. How many, how many people heard the gospel from Jesus? A lot, right? How many people actually repented and believed the gospel? Very few in comparison to that, right? So we take heart knowing that when we proclaim the gospel, we're in a spiritual warfare and it should drive us to our knees to pray fervently before we proclaim, as we proclaim, and after we proclaim the truth to people. That was the reality for Jesus, for Paul, Peter, every evangelist who has ever lived. People rejected what they said and they will object and question what we say now. But this reality should not lead us to fear or even despair. It should motivate us to prepare for people's objections and questions. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay? You're always, always being prepared. You're always ready. So you're preparing your heart every day. I want to be both on the offense, so to speak, and proclaiming the gospel to any who are around me, but I also want to be positioned to testify, to give an apology, to to give a defense, not an apology in the sense that I'm sorry, but a defense of why I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're always prepared, right? So I have to think to ourselves, is that my mentality, right? Do I think that way on a day-by-day basis? If, the, if my coworker just comes up to me at lunchtime and says, tell me why, you, why you're a Christian. Are you at the ready to answer a question like that, right? Are you just chomping at the bit? Is that a question that comes to you and you're like, Praise the Lord. Lord, help me to keep this to like 45 minutes, right? You know, as, as I'm explaining this to, to somebody, okay? But we should be ready for those questions that come. So the Bible tells us to expect objections and questions and to be ready to answer questions about what we believe and why we believe it. But we want to notice something here as well. Look at how Peter tells us how we're called to answer questions. Notice what he says here. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Isn't that interesting? We have to be commanded to do that, right? Because the tendency at times is to really get defensive about your faith, right? Well, here, here's why I believe Jesus. You're all, all over the place. You're angry, and it's like, yeah, I shared the gospel with somebody. And it's like, okay. Do it with gentleness and with respect. And that leads to the second point there on your outline. We should handle objections with gentleness and respect. We have to remind ourselves continuously, this person is blind to spiritual reality. They're deaf to the things of the Spirit of God, just as I was before God awakened me to the truth of his word. And so we have to handle those objections with gentleness and, re- and respect. Listen, how we answer can be just as important as what we say. Colossians 4, verse 6, if somebody can read that for us.
Okay. Always be gracious. Let your speech always be gracious. So we should be gracious and loving toward people with questions and objections. Shouldn't be getting frustrated easily. It's like, how many times can I say this? <laughs> right? That's the natural response. You can get it. I can't believe that person. Do- how many times do I need to say it? Right? It's easy to get frustrated that way. But you have to remind yourself, God, please take the veil off their hearts and cause them to see the truth. They're blind. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Okay, so we need to be fervently praying and conveying the truth in such a way that is, that is winsome. But we have to recognize as well that as important as our preparation and approach are, we must remember that those things alone cannot save people, right? And that leads to point number three there on your outline. Remember, God's saving power is in the gospel, not our apologetics. Even if we could answer every objection, listen, people will not believe without God's spirit illuminating their hearts. And again, that's not a statement to make us lazy in answering those questions. But we have to remember that they're in a blindness. They're in a state of death spiritually. It's dangerous to think that if we're just a little better at apologetics and answering questions, then we'd be more fruitful evangelists, right? You could know every question about everything, and we ought to study to that end. But God has to lift the veil off their hearts. God has to awaken them to the truth. And so we ought not to think that we'd be more fruitful evangelists if we were better at our apologetics. Listen, the thing that you need to study the most to be an effective evangelist is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Know the gospel inside, outside, experientially so that you can proclaim it faithfully to those who are around you. You're going to get all kinds of different questions from people. If you've been evangelizing for any length of time, you know that. But what you have to remind yourself of is what Paul states in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Make sure that in any type of apologetical discussion that you're in, that you get to the gospel at some point. I'm not saying that you know, some, some encounters with people are kind of one and done, where you just have an opportunity at that point. Other relationships are more long-term, where you have an ongoing dialogue with people. But never allow much time to go by in talking with somebody about spiritual things before you get to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can answer every question that they have, but if you don't get to the gospel, then you don't get to the power of God for salvation. 
Now, God does use us, specifically our words, to kind of help tear down those barriers that might be set up in people's hearts and minds. But in the end, our hope must be in God's power and his saving message. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, Josh McDowell, um, wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter, which kind of gave a defense of who Jesus really is, his deity as well as his humanity. And in his book, McDowell writes this, when it comes to apologetics, we should seek to answer people's questions as honestly as possible and then point them to the cross, right? So we don't just stop right there on just defending why Christianity is better than Islam or you, you fill in the blank, whatever the case may be. We have to get to the heart of Christianity, and that is the gospel. Now, again, if you've been talking with people, you may recognize the reality that sometimes people ask totally ridiculous questions <laughs> as, you're, as you're sharing the gospel with them. And you have to guard yourself <laughs> against not responding in a way that's inappropriate to those Questions. So, should we really give every question the same consideration and time that, that people ask us? And that leads up to our, our next point here, number four. Sometimes you should not immediately answer a question. There was an interesting survey done by uh, a guy named Randy Newman, who worked for Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, for a while. He did a study on how Jesus answered questions, and what he found was that over half the time, Jesus didn't immediately answer a question that he was asked. Often, he responded with a question of his own. Um, when Jesus is asked about taxes, for example, in Matthew 22:20, he asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? When he's asked about marriage and divorce in Mark 10.3, he responds by asking them, what did Moses command you? In Mark 10.18, when the rich young ruler asks how to get eternal life, Jesus responds with a question, why do you call me good? All right, so Jesus often responded with questions, and I think the reason that he does this is because asking people questions, especially when they ask you a question that kind of seems just out in left field, engages them back into dialogue with you. Okay? It helps them to think through whatever question it is that they've just asked. Hopefully, they'll either see how ridiculous that question is, or if, they're, if it's a genuine question and you, in your mind you just think it's ridiculous, but for them it's, it's genuine, it'll help further that dialogue that you have with them. So by asking them a question back, it really engages them in the conversation. It makes them think about what they are asking. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was definitely dialogue going on in that, in that situation. So, so we should be discerning when answering objections and questions, because sometimes we recognize this, they're really just smoke screens to get us away from the truth that we're trying to, to bring to people and divert the attention away from the penetrating power of the law of God as it's beginning to expose the sin that's in their lives. And it draws attention away from the real needs of the people that we're evangelizing. And I don't know about you, but 
I, sometimes I get easily engaged in, in questions like that, right? They say something and I jump on this rabbit trail and then, you know, three or four minutes later, I'm thinking, why am I even talking about this right now? I have to remind myself. That's the blessing of going out with another person as well because they can kind of help bring you back on track when you've gotten astray with that. People will start asking all, all kinds of different questions. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons, right? Uh, where are dinosaurs in the Bible? And you, you just see these questions that come at you and you recognize these are just smoke screens that people are, are using. So you don't want to get bogged down in those types of, of questions. Jesus didn't and we shouldn't either. Uh, we see this when Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well, right, in John chapter 4. He, he starts to move that conversation really close to her heart, and she starts talking about long-standing debates between Jews and Samaritans, right? And Jesus kindly addresses her questions and moves past that to the matter at hand, addresses the, the real issue that's going on there. So we should ask God for wisdom on when to focus on a possible rabbit trail and when to briefly address a question that's asked to us and move the conversation forward. You know, a lot of the times if I feel that the question is just going to be an impediment to the truth that we're trying to discuss, I'll say, you know, that's a good question. I want to answer that. But before I answer that, let, let's talk about this. So I don't want to just totally dismiss that person and their question because, again, it could be a genuine question coming from them. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that it may be genuine. Okay? So I don't want to just be like, that's the most ridiculous question I've ever heard. Do you hear yourself? Okay. That wouldn't be a good response. So we have to ask God. And again, this puts us in a spirit of prayer. If you've gone out talking to people about Christ, you realize conversations go in all kinds of different directions. Right? In your mind, you're thinking, all right, here's how it's going to go. I'm going to ask this question. They'll probably answer this way. Then I'll ask this one and this one and this one. And you get on with that conversation. And the first question you ask, boom, it's off in left or right field. And you're just like, oh, wait a minute, that wasn't how it was scripted in my mind, right? So we need to be praying that the Lord would give us wisdom. Lord, help me. I don't know how this person's going to respond, but I ask that you would give me wisdom to know how to guide and direct this conversation so that we get at the heart of the issue, with, which is the gospel, okay? All right, let me, let me open that up to you guys. Tell me about your experiences. What are some things that you've thought about as you've evangelized in that way or, or things that you've been able to say to people to help kind of keep them on track. So, so you're, you're maybe using a, a, um, a different scenario, but you're using that as a bridge to help them to kind of prepare their heart for that truth that God is impressing upon. Because if they can agree on this, yeah. or said, this is true, so yeah. understand what it is now. Let's sort of take this into the, the, the courts of the heavens. Yep. That has to be true as well there, right? You said it was true here, so it has to be true there. That's right. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and I think that's an important point because there, there's a balance here between um, praying fervently that God would open their eyes, but also reasoning with people, right? Uh, we, we recognize that in Scripture that, you know, 
when, when Paul's accused of saying nonsensical things, he's saying, I'm speaking rational words when he's giving his testimony before King Agrippa. I'm speaking rational words, Festus. Right? These things, that what I'm saying, this isn't totally off in, in left field, right? So that, that's helpful to use uh, different analogies, right? You're not banking your hope on that analogy, but you're trying to reason with the person to help them to see uh, what it is that you're saying to them. That's good, Des. Thanks. Lloyd? That's, that's good. Um, I was just thinking of a resource as you were saying that when, when people are, um, when they have a lot of questions about the faith, there's a really good resource. And you'd have to determine this as you have, you know, just depending if it's a coworker or something like that, the person seems reasonably open that they'd be willing to look through some things with you. There's a really good book called, put out, I think it's by the Good Book Company, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's called, If You Could Ask God One Question. Um, and it has a series of about the 11 or 12 most commonly asked questions. And then the last one gets right at the heart of the gospel, if God could ask you one question. And then it kind of turns it around upon them. But it's a really good, it's a really good resource to go through with a person if they're sincerely asking questions about the faith. So anyway, you can, uh, if you could ask God one question. And, and that, that question alone is also a good way to engage people. Um, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Um, a lot of times people say, why is there so much evil in the world or whatever the case may be? That's a starting point. And it's showing a genuineness from your, listen, we're talking to people. We have to remind ourselves of that continuously. These are image bearers, right? They have worth and dignity, right? We don't want to just treat them like an evangelistic opportunity and then move on. Right? This is a person with an eternal soul. And so we want to take great care in how we interact with, with people. Jay? Right. And, and he just blew me away. Yeah. Yep. He, 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 
Yeah. Amen. Amen. Great, great point. Okay. All right. Let's look at the next point here. Number five. We should always be ready to play both offense and defense in evangelism. I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, What I mean is sometimes we play defense and field questions from folks. Okay, so they're on the offense in the sense not that they're being offensive, but that they're, they're the one who are asking questions. They're engaging us. And when we do, when we do feel those questions, we should, again, do it wisely, honestly, humbly, and graciously. We should make a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. We should be able to testify that clearly. We should point people to the answers that we have in the scriptures and testify to God's faithfulness from our own experiences as well. But we should also be ready to play offense. And by that, I mean we should challenge them by asking them questions as well. So hopefully you're, you're in a good dialogue with people. They're asking you questions. You're asking them questions And what we want to really focus on is asking them about the big questions of life that people generally wrestle with. Questions about origin, meaning of life, morality, destiny. Okay, so perhaps you've heard these kind of put in this form. Where did we come from, right? Why are we here? Where do good and bad come from? What happens when we die? So those are some really big overarching questions that we, can, that we can ask people to engage them. And there are things that you'll probably hear people asking you, even if it's not in that direct form, right? If it's not exactly stated that way, right? They may say, man, why, why is life so hard for me? You know, and then they tell you about their upbringing, how things have gone in their lives, and they're talking about evil, good and bad, why these things happen to us, right? And so there are avenues for us to hear from them and also proclaim to them the truth of God's word. So life, life just really naturally presses these questions on people through their experiences, and as those entrusted with the gospel, we should press into these questions. We should help them consider what things are of ultimate importance. Okay, and then the last point here, and we might finish up a little bit early today and leave it open for some questions if we have any, is number six. If someone asks you a question you don't know how to answer, it's okay to say, I don't know. Raise your hand if you've ever tried to answer a question that you really didn't know. Okay, thank you. (laughs) They ask you that question, it's like, I should be able to answer this. So let me try something here. (laughs) Listen, it's normal, isn't it, to not like saying, I don't know. Especially when it comes to the things of the faith. Right? It's like, I should know this. And it's normal to do everything you can to help someone come to know to to come to know Christ. So when you bring those things together, when someone asks you a question that we don't know the answer to, we can oftentimes feel ill-equipped, ignorant, or even feel like a failure, right? Like, I totally 
blew it. Right? There it was. Just a softball right down the middle of the plate. And it went right by me. <laughs> and I totally blew it. Listen, that right there can keep people from being faithful in evangelism. Right? People can think, I, I, there's so many questions I don't know answers to. I'm not saying anything. I'm not going to open my mouth and prove my ignorance. Right? Forrest. We're just going to say it's really easy to say, you know, I'm not sure about that, but I, let me check it out and get back That's right. That way you have a possibility of a follow-up as well. Amen. You read my notes. <laughs> Don't be sorry. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you. So feel that freedom. Like Forrest just said, if somebody asks you a question and you really don't know the answer to it, it's okay to say, I don't know. Listen, you're not God. You don't have every answer to every question. But that shouldn't discourage us, right? We shouldn't feel like a failure if we don't know. I've gotten a lot of good questions in times of evangelism that I didn't know that helped me to go back and study. And now the next time that question is asked, now I do know, right? And so I love questions that I get from people because it helps to sharpen my faith and it helps to deepen it. A lot of the times on things maybe that you wouldn't study as extensively, you go deeper in your understanding of the word, word of God and you come out bolstered in your faith even more so. So don't feel tempted to make up an answer to sound like you know what you're talking about. People can usually read right through that and be like, you don't have a clue what you're saying right now. Just as we can also discern that from somebody else. If someone asks you something you don't know, I'm going to just pick up on what Forrest said there. Okay, Be able to say, I don't know. Write that down, research it, and say, I want to get back to you on this, right? As Forrest said, it provides a great opportunity for follow-up, and it will show you if that person is really genuine, if they really are asking those type of things sincerely. Even if they're not, it gives you an opportunity to go back and do, do some study. Peter? Amen. Amen. So that, that's helpful. Don't, don't try to answer something if you feel that you don't, don't know the answer to that. I've heard someone say before that when it came to getting stumped with a question in evangelism, they might get me once, but they won't get me twice. <laughs> and that should be our mentality as well, is that, in other words, that was a good question. I need to go back and research that and help them to understand that if they're willing to further engage. But even if they're not, if that question comes at me again, not so that I can be prideful and puffed up and I've got the answer now, but so I can just humbly be more equipped to answer people's questions when they, when they come with them. So for this person, evangelism was a way to strengthen their, their own faith. It's a way for them to understand more of why we believe what we believe. Um, Okay, so Forrest mentioned that. Any other questions or any other tips that you have on a good way to handle that, Des?
competent in the scriptures. He had been instructing the way of the Lord. With a fervent spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. Mm. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained the way of the, explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So his, his, he only knew of the baptism of John. Yeah. Yes, that's a great passage, Des. Thanks for bringing that up. I think that really, just hearing that again, just reaffirms the, the necessity of making it a practice to go out corporately with, with the people of God. I've been benefited so much by going out with other people, and I'll hear a question asked, and I'm thinking, I don't really know how to answer that. And this person over here answers it, and I'm like, man, that, that really strengthened my faith, just hearing that was good for my own, my own soul. So that, that's a really helpful passage. He was speaking boldly about the truth that he knew, and yet there was still more for him to add to that arsenal, so to speak. And as he did, he was able to refute um, people's objections even, even greater, and also to strengthen the saints more. So really, really helpful passage, Des. Thanks for that. That was Acts 18, starting at verse 24 and going through... 28. 28. Okay, 24 through 28 in Acts 18. Uh, so that's, that's helpful. Any other, any other comments about you know, things, Dean? Exactly, exactly. Good point. Yeah, it's really helpful when you can engage people that way and give them things to help them to, to think about, uh, you know, statements that they have, they have made. So that's, that's helpful. Okay, anything else? Lucy. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, like you were talking about there, First Thessalonians 4 is helpful that we grieve, but not as those without hope. And it really, for me, as I've just worked through that experientially, it really goes on a case-by-case -case basis. 
Some people, when, when things like that happen, I don't say a word. I just join them in their weeping. Um, other people that I know are, who are wired a little bit differently, where I know I, I need a word. Tell me, tell me a, the, the truth. Now, I want to eventually get to the word with that other person as well. But you really have to just pray for wisdom to the Lord to know when should I speak and when should I, I not speak. Um, because a lot of the times we can, our tendency when something like that to, is to jump right to like First Thessalonians 4. It's like, that's okay, we can grieve, but not as those without hope. God is sovereign. He knew the days. And, and it's all those things that a person may already know, but it's, it's like, I, I, I understand that. I just need time to grieve right now and to weep. Um, so I think you really have to be discerning on that. I would come alongside a person like that and express my heartfelt grief over that. There, there is a grief that is there, that's necessary, that is God-given, that ought to take place. It's, it's not right just to try to suppress feelings of grief by just, oh, I'm going to see him in heaven one day. That's glorious and that's good. But Paul says there, we grieve, but not as those without hope. So there is, and, and, that, and that grieving process looks different for people, Right? You may come across somebody who six, six months, a year down the road, and they're still working through you know, things, and depending on the type of relationship that they had. So I, I think it really takes wisdom uh, in a situation like that. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at Audrey and Marilyn because we were talking about this enjoy fellowship of praying for wisdom to the Lord to help us to know when to speak and when not to speak in a situation like that. So I don't think there's just kind of a pat answer that, that you can give, other than we see grieving is a God-given gift to deal with separation and issues like that. But when, when, we, when we sense, and this is where the prayer becomes so important for us, when we sense that that person's dropping into a state of despair from that grief, right, is when we need to come alongside them and, as Desmond likes to often say, lift their chin up and help them to look afresh at the promises of God and the reality that um, this is just temporary. It's, 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 a, it's a see you later rather than a goodbye. Um, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and how I would deal with that, especially depending on the freshness of it, um, I would want to be sensitive to their question. And if it's something that I feel is relatively recent, and they're, and they're honestly asking that question to you, they know you're a Christian or whatever, you know, I, I don't have any problem saying, you know, the Bible actually has answers for these type of questions. And when, when you're ready, I'd love to sit down with you if you'd like and, and talk about what the Bible says uh, about these things. That way you're, you're answering it, but you're waiting for that time to be right for them. And you're not trying to force the issue right in the middle of a very um, a sensitive mo uh, moment for that person where their emotions are all over, all over the place and it actually may be more detrimental than beneficial in a situation like this. So I try to acknowledge something like that and lay that out on the table. I, I'd love to have that conversation with you when you're ready. 
because the hope, I have great hope in what God has given to us in his word uh, for questions like, like this. So I don't have all the answers on that, so feel free, everybody else, to, to chime in. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right, amen. Amen. Very good. Very good. Did anybody else? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, on the previous question? Okay, go ahead. The last section, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Good point. false witness. Good, good point. Good point. That's, that's excellent. Okay, let's look at the, uh, the last thing here. Just a couple of points here on uh, the back side of your paper there. Common um, objections. I think that's how I put it there. Yeah, common objections. Um, you're going to get a lot of different ones, but these are some that, that come out uh, a little more. Um, frequently. And again, you, you're, you try to discern the sincerity of the person asking, asking the question. So that first one there is, how can you believe the Bible is true? Wasn't the Bible just a book written by men? Um, you can point people to the self-testifying nature of, of Scripture through a couple passages that'll help um, point people that way. 2 Timothy 3.16 good one. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men, of, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so those are a couple passages that you can you can uh, turn to in helping people to understand that. One of the other things that you want to do is help them to think through, um, are, there, are there any uh, objections that you have or questions that you have that would prove that the Bible isn't true? Right? So you kind of turn that around to a question to them. Right? Why don't you believe the Bible is true? In other words, turn, turn the word of God, help them to see what, what is causing you not to believe that the Bible is true. If you can get people into the scriptures, and this is, um, this is more than apologetics in this sense, okay? 
You can read Genesis to Revelation, and if the Spirit of God does not open your eyes to see the truth, you will not believe that the Bible is true. That being said, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So I want to help people get into the Bible to say, let's read, if you're willing, a gospel together. Let's read the Gospel of John together. We'll go through one chapter a week and just read through it, and we'll interact with it, okay, and we'll talk about it. Because you can probably testify this to, well, when, when did you truly come to believe that the Bible was the Word of God? When God converted you and opened your eyes to the reality of it. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit is what caused you to believe that this book is true. This is the Word, the word of God. So the best way that you can help answer that question, if that person is sincere, is get into the Bible with them. It's like, have you ever read the Bible? No, I haven't. Well, would you be willing to read it with me? We could just go through one chapter a week, you know, for the next uh, few weeks. And you can pick a smaller book, just through the Gospel of John out there. Um, but faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Trust the power of the Word of God. And pray fervently that as that person reads, God would open their eyes to see the truth of it. You can give some good factual information that you know, it was a book written over, by, over the course of 1,500 years by more than 40 authors, 66 books, all with one theme running from Genesis to Revelation. There's no book like it. The manuscript evidence that is there for it outweighs any other manuscript evidence significantly that we have on any other written record. Um, and so therefore, to disbelieve the, the historicity of the Bible and the truthfulness of it, you'd have to object to every other written. Those are, those are good things, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't go there. But the way to help people really to see the truthfulness of it is get them into the Bible with you, okay? Get them into the Bible with you. Okay, let me um, just move on for the sake of time uh, to the second question there. And Lloyd brought this one up. What about the problem of evil? How could a good God allow evil? You've probably heard that question come up in one form or another, when you're interacting, interacting with people. And how, how we want to deal with questions like that is first acknowledge that there's a ton of pain and suffering and evil in the world. You don't know what is causing that person to ask that question. They may come from a very abusive background of some type that's leading them to ask a question like that. And they may be trying to kind of screen that by pointing to some third world country or something like that. Be sensitive to people's questions. Take them at their word that this is a genuine question and be sensitive to that. Listen carefully to them in order to determine what exactly it is that's bothering them so much. Is there a specific experience that they've personally endured? And maybe you'll find that out in like your third or fourth conversation is that, you know, when I was seven or eight years old, here's what happened to me. And that puts everything into perspective. Right? You, you kind of understand where this person's coming from. Maybe they've been to too many funerals lately um, for loved ones who died younger than expected from various situations. Okay? So we want to make sure that we're sensitive to those type of questions. But also, again, get them back to the Word of God. Help them to see how the Word of God deals with this. A great place to go is the story of Joseph in Genesis towards the end of Genesis. But in Genesis 50 in particular, if you go ahead and turn with me there real quick, and we've just got a few minutes left here, but I do want to read this passage because, again, 
let, let the scriptures, the scriptures are the best examples you can give. And when you're trying to think of different examples to give people, think first, is there a biblical example that I could use in answering this person's question? So I want to get them into the word. Again, trusting that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Genesis 50, we're just going to pick it up here in verse 15. Make sure that you read, if you're going to use the example of Joseph, make sure that you understand the story of Joseph before you just turn to a passage like this. And it's like, something happened before this. I'm not sure what it is, but here we go. <laughs> so make sure you just understand what's going on there. So I'm, I'm picking it up at the latter part of the story. But starting in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So help them to see. Okay, so here's this man, Joseph. Evil was done to him. His brothers are admitting this. We did evil to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We can help people to see the reality that evil takes place. The scriptures testify to the reality that evil takes place. But the perspective that this man has on the situation is, yes, evil happened to me, but God was governing all of this, right? God was governing this whole thing that was taking place, and God had a good purpose behind it. He was working through that. The pinnacle of that is what? The pinnacle of an evil act happening to a man and good coming from that is what? Christ and the cross, right? That's the pinnacle. There's other examples, but that's the pinnacle. Go to that one, right? Make sure you get there. Here's, here's evil. Go into acts, help people to see. These are wicked things. They're being called out. You, you wicked men put this man to death, but God was governing it. Right? Help them to see that God's not immune to evil. As a matter of fact, the Son of God was treated with greater evil than any other man on the face of the planet. Right? Get them, help them to see that. And you want to speak to them again compassionately. But that also helps people to see Jesus isn't immune to evil happening and to dealing with things like that. So make sure that you get to the cross. Another good one that Forrest mentioned was the situation with Job that took place. That's a great way just to look through the scriptures with somebody as well. Help them to see Job didn't have a clue what was happening here. All these things were happening to him, but God's hand was behind that, and he had a purpose behind all these, all these things. Okay? So you want to make sure that you counsel well when you're dealing with that and counsel sensitively as people may have really genuine questions and horrible evil that has happened to them in the past. Okay, And then the last one for you there on your outline is how do you know God exists? Can you prove God exists? Well, their own conscience knows that God exists. Um, but let's just take this in order. First, creation, Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. All right? 
I remember succinctly uh, when Sabrina and I went on vacation a few years ago over to Siesta Key and just this gorgeous sunset. Everybody was out on the beach watching the sunset and the sun goes down and just goes under the horizon and people break out in applause, just clapping and everybody's like, I, just instinctively, it wasn't like, okay, everybody, right, when the sun goes down, clap, right? It's just, that's worthy of praise. That's testifying to the reality. And so I was walking back with a, a guy and I said, why is that so glorious, right? It's because God created that, right? And I think he was a believer because he was attesting to what I was saying, but I was like, I got to take advantage of this, man. This is just like a perfect opportunity. just wanted to set up a little podium there and preach the gospel. But creation itself testifies to that. And then we see in Romans 1, always a good place to, to think through. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, right? So there's that aspect of suppression. It's like, I see that's a glorious sunset, but I can't attribute that to God because then that means I'm accountable to him and then that means I'm in big trouble, right? Because I got a guilty conscience and I'm trying to deal with it. For what can be known about God is plain to them, right? It's just, there it is. The evidence is on the table because God has shown it to them, right? So stand on the foundation of the word of God. When that atheist tells you he doesn't believe in God, I look to the word of God and even if I don't testify to this, I'm thinking, yes, you do. Because this right here, it's plain to them. God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. How? Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, right? So they're without excuse. Every man's mouth will be shut on the day of judgment. Nobody will say, I didn't know there was a God. So creation first testifies to the existence of God. Secondly, conscience. Romans chapter 2 deals with this reality that the law is written on the heart of man. Right? Man knows. That's why, that's why there, there's so many religions. That's why we're trying to deal with guilt. That's what religions are. Trying to appease our conscience about being guilty before a holy God. And this is a great place to turn to the law of God with that person. Here's the, here's the proof of the existence of God. Let me walk through some questions with you, right? And help them to see the reality of their offense against a holy God. Our conscience shows that a good creator God made us to know right from wrong and good from evil. It's, it's, it's good, too, to bring out examples like this. Hey, you know, what happened? Just pick out an example that's happened either in the world or in our city or something like that. Does that make you upset? Yeah, man, that's wrong. Why? Why is that wrong? Who says it's wrong? Right? Help them to think about that reality of how, how do I have a sense of knowing right from wrong? I love to use the illustration of little children as well, especially if you're dealing with anybody who has kids, you can help them to see, do you have to teach them to do wrong? And when you confront them with their wrongdoing, do they know it? Yes. Did you do that? No. <laughs> right. And they're, they're trying to get around that. Help them to see it's, it's innate. It's right there. But use, use things around you about those terrorist attacks that took place. Does that, is that, a bad thing? 
Yeah? Why is it a bad thing, right? If evolution is true, it's just survival of the fittest. We should be rejoicing. Hey, we're progressing. The stronger getting stronger. Nobody thinks that way. You may be an evolutionist in the classroom, but you're not in practical, everyday life. You have a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong. It's because God has given us that conscience as that alarm within us that helps us to see. You, know, you can testify to your own life as well. I remember back in the day, I wasn't a Christian, but uh, you, know, you go into a, like a 7-Eleven or something like that, and it's like, oh, look at that pack of gum. You grab the pack of gum, stick it in your pocket, immediately your heart <laughs> right, just starts pounding. It's like, why? Why is that happening? Right? I know instinctively that's wrong, what I'm doing at, at this moment. Right? Nobody else is watching. Nobody else sees what's going on here. But instinctively, I know that this is not right. And then the third evidence is Christ. So creation, conscience, Christ. And again, this is a great place to, to, to if they're genuine and sincere and asking you questions, is let's read through one of the accounts of Jesus' life together. Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or, or John. Okay. And let's see what Jesus says about himself. Let's see what he claims for himself. Let's look at the miracles that he has done. Let's, let's hear the eyewitness accounts from those who walked with him. Okay, so there's a, a bunch of different ways that you can, you can go with that. So don't be afraid of questions or objections. Don't be afraid that because you don't have all the answers in the world that that should keep you from talking to people about Jesus. Know the gospel and you're equipped to talk to somebody about the Lord. Okay? Be gentle, be honest, be humble and respectful. If you don't know, don't be embarrassed to say so. And above all, be prayerful and gospel-centered as those questions and objections come to you. Okay? All right, so we went over a little bit. Let's pray before service starts. Father, thank you again for this opportunity that we have uh, to, to open your word and to think through these things. And Father, we just want to confess that at times we have been fearful. Um, please strengthen us, Lord. Help us to remember the centrality of the gospel. Help our hearts to be bathed in the gospel that we may know how to answer every man, Lord, and to do in a way that is honoring to you. Grant us, Father, just a gracious, humble spirit as we remember that we're speaking to image bearers, those who have dignity and worth in and of themselves because of your handiwork in creating them. Give us great compassion for them, Lord. Help us to weep over them as they are sheep without a shepherd. Equip us and strengthen us, Lord, uh, for your glory. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.